From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. There was a lot to love in Gator athletics this Valentine's week, including a critical home win for basketball, Todd Grantham spurning the orange and black to stay with the orange and blue, the opening of softball's newly renovated stadium, and the start of baseball season. On today's show, we'll begin right there as Jeff Cardozo chats with head coach Kevin O'Sullivan about breaking in a young squad and a new year on the diamond. Then, we'll discuss the state of hoops, chronicle the Todd Grantham saga, get instant feedback on softball's new palace, and more with FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter. But first, after coming up short in their national title defense last year, baseball is back and ready to make another run to Omaha. But doing that will require a lot of young and unproven players to quickly rise to the challenge. Gator broadcaster Jeff Cardozo caught up with Sully a few days before first pitch and began by asking him about the buildup to the season, which began last semester with fall ball. It's been an interesting fall. We've got a big turnaround as far as the roster is concerned. I think we added 15 new players to, you know, to our program, and obviously, um, you know, we're awfully excited to get started on Friday. You get started always with a whole bunch of, of unknowns. You mentioned the, the roster change, and you lose guys like India and Schwartz and his consistency over the years, and, and Brady and Coar and Byrne and all these guys, but... You know, I think you're, you're at a point now where you're the University of Florida. You know you're going to lose a, a lot of guys that are going to get drafted really high at, at the next level. So is it the mentality for, for you and the rest of the coaching staff now, next man up, and let's just continue this thing? Well, yeah, but, you know, it's it's not just, you know, the 2018 team that we've lost some really good players. You know, you look back at 17 where you lost Fido, Guthrie, Mike Rivera, Mark Savari, and those, obviously those names. And then you go back to 16 where you lost, you know, Logan Shore, Dane Dunning, A.J. Puck, Pete Alonzo, Buddy Reed, Sean Anderson. <laughs> you know, the list goes on and on and you know scott moss kirby sneed you know so we've lost quite a few players from the 16 17 18 teams but um, we've got a really good nucleus coming back and we're excited about our freshmen um, we've, we've got a lot of things to overcome early in the you know in the spring here um, to kind of see what we have in the bullpen probably most importantly because we're so young there but certainly talented enough we just don't know how the pieces are all going to put you know be put together let's talk about some of those veterans that come back uh, out here for the alumni game last week and you, you saw the c on on blake reese's chest and, and nelly's back is, is a senior and langworthy certainly a veteran you got dalton there in the middle of the lineup so there are some older guys that, that have been to omaha several times that should carry this group yeah i think in looking at the lineup you know we we kind of toyed with it a little bit and tried different things this spring i think when we started the spring we had acton leading off and a week and a half ago we kind of you know, flip some things around and think what we'll do when we start the season is probably lead off Langworthy. And, and Brady McConnell's been, has really, really made some, some big strides here, you know, the last month or so. So we'll probably hit him too. He'll play short. Um, Nelly will hit three. Will Dalton four. And then Acton will hit five. Looks like, um, Kendra Calileo will, will hit six. Uh, Brady Smith will hit seventh and catch. And then obviously eight and nine will be Blake Reese and, and Judd Fabian in center field. So we feel like we got some length to our lineup. You know, certainly seven, eight, nine are, are all very capable. So, um, we're excited about our lineup. Um, but once again, we're probably going to start three true, 
true freshman and a redshirt freshman at Short and Brady McConnell. But certainly, you know, like I said before, we're certainly talented enough. It's just a matter of going out there and playing when it, you know, when the lights go on on Friday night. And, and with that lineup too, obviously they're they're playing defense, and, and then you're talking about a freshman at, at third. You're talking about a freshman in, in center, a, a young guy that hadn't played much at, at Short, and another young guy over at first. And you know, Brady didn't get much behind the plate. So you guys have always been so good ever since you've been here defensively. Is that something that you know you feel that these guys are, are up to the challenge? That's still going to be a work in progress as well. Early on, you know, I was concerned about that a little bit in the fall because of our youth. But if there's one area where I think we've we've improved probably more than any other is probably defensively, and I think that starts with Brady McConnell. I've been really, really pleased with how he can you know play shortstop for us. You know, um, since we got back in January, and I think adding Judd Fabian, true center fielder, has really kind of solidified you know solidified things for us up the middle. And Brady Smith is arguably our our most improved defensive player, and I feel great with him behind the plate. We've got some depth there as well. But um, I think up the middle, where I was a little bit concerned in the fall, certainly feel a lot better about that right now going into the spring. So let's uh, switch gears over to uh, to the guys on the mound. A couple of guys that got a lot of experience last year as freshmen, and certainly Tommy Mason and, and Leftwich. And you know Tyler Dyson's now next up, and you know you you're rattling all those names off, and you've just had the luxury of running somebody out there all the way back from from Huddy on Friday nights to to now. So. For, for him to take over and, and have those other two guys, how, how confident are you in this pitching staff? I like our starting pitching. I think, you know, anybody would, you know, welcome a Tyler Dyson or a Tommy Mace or Jack Leftwich to their rotation. I, so I think, you know, from, from a talent standpoint, it's certainly there. It's a little unproven because they just haven't done it on the big stage yet consistently for the course of a year. But I, I was really pleased with how, you know, how Tommy and Jack finished last year. Certainly in Omaha, they had some really good outings. Jack beat, you know, Texas Tech and, Tommy pitched really good against Arkansas last game of the year, and and obviously Dyson pitched in, in arguably you know one of the most difficult games he's ever had to pitch in his freshman year against LSU in the championship series. So I think the starting pitching is going to be fine. How how it all shakes out, who's the Friday guy a month from now? Hopefully it's Tyler because we're going to need somebody to take over that role. But I certainly feel really really good about you know, the Saturday and Sunday starters and, and Tommy Mason, Jack Leftwich. I think the biggest question mark that we have with our are pitching other than, you know, what I already mentioned about who's going to be able to take over that Friday night role consistently for the course of the year is our bullpen. You know, you look at it, you know, Jordan Butler is probably, you know, our most experienced guy in the pen. He's only a sophomore. Mm-hmm. The rest of those guys in the pen are freshmen. So we're going to need, you know, we have about five freshmen. We're going to need two or three of those guys to step up and, and be able to pitch some really significant innings here as we go along. But the one name that, you know, um, kind of like Judd Fabian graduated high school early and got here in January is Nolan Crisp, a right-handed pitcher from, from Georgia who, who came in here early and he's done nothing but get people out. And right now, I think we started the season. Our plan is to go ahead and close him. And he threw great the other night in the alumni game. He's, he hasn't given up a run yet this spring, knock on wood, but you know, he's been really, really impressive. And, you know, like I said, there, there's some question marks, but we're going to go into it with probably with him, you know, end up being our closer to start the season. You know, when, when you signed this class, I remember talking to you, you talked about how, how great the arms are. And you know, I think you're always going to get that here at the University of Florida because of your success. But I guess, how do you figure out when they, when they get it mentally? Like, you know, they're always going to have really good arms, but can, can you gauge in the fall that, hey, these guys have figured it out? Does it take some time into the spring when they're facing other competition to, to see that light click on? Yeah, you know, Obviously, you know, we had some opportunities in the fall to play some outside competition. You kind of get an idea there. And we played, you know, obviously a bunch of inner squads between the fall and the spring. But ultimately, you really don't know how players are going to respond until, you know, you start the season. And 
there's guys that have great falls that, you know, that struggle a little bit in the spring. And then there's guys that have struggled in the fall to have great springs. I mean, you just really don't know. But the bottom line is, is we've got some freshmen that are going to have to pitch for us and maybe different than, than years past. Where we've kind of eased them in a little bit. We're not going to have that opportunity, I don't think, this year very much. So the alternative, and this is what we've talked to the, you know, the young pitchers about is the alternative is, you know, we can have an older roster and they could sit behind some guys their yeah. first year and, and not get as many opportunities or, you have a younger roster, and a lot of these guys are going to have a, a lot of opportunities to go out there and, and contribute right away. So, you know, if it was me, I'd, I'd rather the latter, you know, and be able to go out there and, and be able to pitch as a freshman. So um, talent-wise, is, is not going to be the issue. It's, it's really going to come down to, a, you know, who's going to be able to control their heart rate, control their emotions, and be able to learn to be as consistent as possible. Have these guys, these young guys, been able to pick it up? Have the veteran guys been able to sort of carry them along and just really continue? Because, I mean, you guys are in unprecedented territory. Four straight trips to Omaha. Is is it the mentality now where those older guys are telling those younger guys, this is what we do here at Florida? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the standard's kind of set. The expectation is to be, you know, in contention every year to go to Omaha and, and, and to contend for, you know, you know, national championships. And, you know, a lot of these players have been, you know, drafted out of high school and they, they've been through, you know, being scouted and, and pitched in some important games through travel ball in high school and that type of thing. But, you know, I think some other guys, obviously you mentioned Jordan Butler, but I think someone like Hunter Ruth is coming back from injury. You know, obviously he's a redshirt freshman, but he's been in the program for a year and I'm looking for big things from him. Um, Hunter McMullen, looking forward to him making a jump, a step forward. And like I said, we got Christian Scott, Ben Speck, Nick Pogue, David Lucci, Devin Hemingway is another lefty that we got from Santa Fe. That, you know, have a chance to pitch for us right away. We had Nick Lasucci uh, through today um, already uh, to some live hitters, and he's probably about two or three weeks away coming back from his Tommy John. So that would be one more older guy that we could throw in a pen. So. Like I said, it, it, it's an interesting group. Um, we're excited about getting them out there. And um, I, I don't know if we've had a younger roster maybe since 2010. And we had a lot of success that year. You know, obviously went to the World Series mm-hmm. and won the SEC. So these guys are certainly capable. But, um, you know, there there will be some ups and downs. And in the end, if these young players progress like a lot of the young players have, you know, before them and we could stay healthy, we've got a chance to be really good by year end. Since you mentioned the SEC, let's just talk about that real quick because it's Vandy, it's LSU, it's, you know, I mean, heck, I could just rattle off everybody that's in the top 25 and it's all amongst that. So, you know, it's, it's exciting to, to play in a league like this, but I know it's also hard for you guys because there, there's no breaks. It's 30 games of just absolute Friday, Saturday, Sunday of, of being a grind. Yeah. I mean, every, every year it's daunting. You look at your schedule and you go, well, you know, this is going to be a, it's going to be a difficult schedule to, you know, to navigate through, but, you know, I think what people sometimes lose sight of is, there's, you know, the non-conference games. Mm-hmm. You know, that schedule every year is difficult. We play three, obviously, against Florida State every year, three against Miami the second weekend. And we play Winthrop, I believe, the third weekend. And they've got two really good starters. And, and then we play Yale the fourth weekend, and they're picked to win the Ivy. And, and then, obviously, you add in, you know, the South Floridas, the UNFs, the JUs, and, and all the other, you know, in-state teams that we play, UCF. I mean, it's not easy. And um, so we're going to be tested a lot early. Um, but like I said, I, I think if we can stay healthy and, and guys can learn from their success and learn from their failures and we can get a couple of these guys to, to be as consistent as they possibly can, 
I, I think we got a chance to be okay. In the offseason, we see teams all over the country changing head coaches, changing regular coaches, guys moving on and doing things. But, you know, you, you've been able to to keep Brad and, and keep Craig, and now Lars has been here for a really long time, and Buddy being a part of that staff. How important is that to not only for, for you but just the, the entirety of the program? You know, I've been asked that question quite a bit, how you've been able to maintain the program at such a high level. And I, and I, I really do think that the continuity of our staff – not just the coaches, but like you said, you know, Buddy Monroe, you know, Eggy, our equipment manager, you know, John McElhinney, our trainer, you know, Paul, our strength coach. You know, we, we've been able to keep the nucleus together. And I think that continuity obviously has played a huge, huge part in us being able, you know, to sustain, you know, sustain the success, you know, success we've had. I know you're a little under the weather, but uh, I know you're still probably excited uh, about Friday too. And, uh, you know, this is just uh, another time, you know, I, I know you, you're getting older, but you, you still look young. Like, is there still that passion of what opening day is all about and just uh, the excitement to get out there again? Oh, of course. I mean, there's nothing like opening night. And um, I know the players are awfully excited. I know I am. Um, the staff's excited. It's just been, you know, the, the off season seems to, it's, it's long. Yep. And, um, you know, and that, to have the opportunity to play somebody else. We play Long Beach. Obviously, they're a perennial regional type team coming across the country. They play a little bit different style of, of baseball than, than what we do on the East Coast, which would be a great challenge for us. Troy Buckley, our coach, is a really good friend of mine. So, um, you know, it's going to be a great challenge for us. And, um, but that's what we like to do. Try to play as good a schedule as we possibly can to challenge ourselves early and certainly gives you a, a gauge on where you're at and what you need to improve on. Well, a lot of Gator fans uh, ready to get going. I know you are as well. So, Sully, thanks for the time, and I uh, look forward to 56 regular season and hopefully many more after that. Awesome. Thanks, Jeff. While basketball has had its struggles off and on throughout the year, the one constant has been standout play from Kayvon Allen and Noah Locke. But what happens when you can't count on the constants anymore? As we opened our roundtable, Chris broke down how Florida was able to beat Vanderbilt even if the stats suggested otherwise. Kayvon Allen and Noah Locke are the first and second leading scorers on the team at uh, almost 31 points a game. They go two for 19 from the floor. And uh, Kayvon Allen doesn't score until there's uh, three minutes, 17 seconds left in the game. I think he missed his first seven shots, if I'm not mistaken. So... I mean, in a season where you, it's really hard to find some positive things, even though, you know, regardless of the schedule and um, how difficult that's been and the fact, you know, they are they are over 500 at 13 and 11 and they're closing. They're trying to get the 500 in the SC. But my takeaway from that game, Adam, was uh, bench production because Mike White has been tearing his hair out the last few weeks. And, you know, one of these guys, whether it's uh, DeAndre Ballard or Michael Koru or Stokes, because they need one of those guys because they, they, they got to play those guys at times because right now they're at a, like about a, a seven man rotation and they sprinkle in those guys. Well, they, they needed, they needed, they needed one of those guys to do something and all three of them did something. In fact, the bench outscored Vanderbilt's 29 to seven. And so, uh, uh, enter DeAndre Ballard, who's had a difficult time being where he's supposed to be this season in terms of where he's supposed to be on the floor at times. He got an, uh, a, an offensive rebound and hit a critical three in a, in the first half, excuse me, where they really needed it. Michael Coru had a he- element of hesitation. The guy hadn't scored in seven games, I think. Hmm. And in a transition play off a of steal, he goes to the right place. He goes to the corner. Spots up, they give him the ball. He kind of thought, do I shoot this? Do I shoot this? Shoots it, three-point shot. Um, Mike White said afterward it was just, it might have been his best game all season. Talk about both ends. 
Um, and finally, you, you go Isaiah Stokes, who has been um, hasn't been a factor at all because of his conditioning. Well, he's done some things the last few weeks to make him playable, namely drop. I'd say it's 15 pounds over the last two weeks. Hmm. He is over the 50 pound marker now since he arrived here uh, in terms of the weight that he's lost. And that made him playable when Kavaris uh, Hayes was in foul trouble. Dante Bassett's in foul trouble. And our Isaiah Stokes, who I've said any number of times, the coaches have said any number of times, this is the best, uh, most skilled offensive low post player. They don't have just right now that has been here in the last couple of years in terms of what he can do with his hands, his vision. That's I'm talking offense, not defense. He's not a great rebounder by any stretch of the imagination. And anyway, enter Stokes. He plays eight minutes, or excuse me, nine minutes of the first half, scores eight points, including a, a stick-back uh, rebound. Uh, it might have been his first offensive rebound season, for all I know. Uh, at the buzzer, halftime to draw the game within a two-point game. So uh, contributions from those guys really helped offset uh, lack of contributions or, or a cold night shooting, uncharacteristically cold night for Noah Locke, certainly. I, I think he was one for ten from the floor. But uh, obviously a credit to those guys. They helped Florida get a win. Granted, uh, uh, Vanderbilt came in here. People are probably saying, so what? But for a team that hadn't won in two weeks, for a coach, I'll say this, who's facing Bryce Drew, mm-hmm. who had beaten him six out of seven times since he's been here, you know, you leave the arena uh, feeling okay. You're not going to feel bad about a win like that because it was just uh, last week that Vanderbilt had um, Tennessee down uh, down six in regulate with a minute and a half left in regulation. Ended up losing that game in overtime. But Vanderbilt's been in some games this season. Lately, they haven't been in a lot. Florida was able to hold on and win. Okay, so up next for the Gators, they go to Alabama. And that, that's an interesting matchup, Chris, because it's one of those teams that's kind of in the same boat as Florida. It's almost like a, a battle to the death. Who's going to stay alive in the, the fight to be an NCAA tournament team? And again, we talked about it last week. Despite everything that's happened to Florida, despite the losses in the last couple of weeks, at, at the moment... They're right on the bubble, according to ESPN and Joe Gonardi. So you win a game against a team like Alabama, and then you look at what's after that. These are the games that Florida has to win coming up if they realistically are going to stay in that conversation. Yeah, and you look at the standings heading into the weekend, Adam. And you know, Florida's at five and six in the league, little uh, uh, four-way tie. Uh, Alabama is one game ahead at six and five. So, it, you know, it's a chance. Florida won at Alabama last year. Now, they won at Alabama last year because Jalen Hudson had a great game. I think he had 27 there, and hmm. I was sitting next to a scout that night. He had moments of that game where he looked like Kobe Bryant. Uh, it sure would be nice to see that Jalen Hudson again. I mean, even in the in the um, in the Vanderbilt game, at one point he scored seven straight points during a critical juncture of the game in the second half. But he still ended up, I believe, being a, a two for nine from the floor. He was aggressive. He drove the ball, got got to the free throw line, and what have you. And that's that's all positive. But offensively, his game obviously still isn't there. But um, yeah, for all Florida's warts uh, and the losses and the late game uh, collapses and what have you. You know, they're still in a in a conversation. Uh, granted, the the window is there's there's not much space to to climb in it. Uh, margin for error is very small. So uh, if you can go and beat Alabama, that's that'll be another uh, uh, feather in terms of um, one of those top 50 wins in the NET system. That's going to see the, the tournament. Florida only has one of those right now. And it came against Ole Miss which is on a little bit of a surge. They, they finished a sweep of Auburn. So uh, they're, they're chasing Ole Miss up there. They're chasing South Carolina at 7-4, but the team directly in front of them is Alabama. And, you know, if you, you can go on the road and beat a team like Alabama, uh, which has some really, really good players. Dante Hall is a guy who's going to give Florida fists because of his size. They got guys on the perimeter who can score. 
they, I mean, they came in here last year and just destroyed Florida at a time when Florida was very, very vulnerable. So it's not going to be easy, obviously. But uh, let's say hypothetically you go to Tuscaloosa and you somehow come out with win. Well, now you got 14 wins with what is it, seven to go, and you got a you got another good win, and you're playing one of the best games in the country, the best one in the SEC, easily. And now, you know, that bubble conversation, a little, little more realistic. Maybe that sends a jolt to your team, but all that's speculative until uh, you actually go there and you do something. Because certainly, you know, Florida's not good enough to go there and turn the ball over 17 times like they did at Auburn in, the last ro- in their last road game to Alabama or not shoot well like they did against Tennessee. Um, they, they have to be better than they were the other day, and they certainly need more contribution from Kayvon Allen and Noah Locke to win a game like that on the road. This past week, uh, a story that not a lot of us expected to hear about, which was the possibility that Todd Grantham would be leaving the Gators to go to the professional ranks where he's been before. But uh, we got word a couple days ago, Scott, that uh, Grantham was going to be staying put at Florida. So can you take us through what you know about this situation and how this all came together? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the Beagles are an organization that recently uh, hired a new head coach, uh, and they're looking to uh, add kind of a veteran defensive coordinator from the the guys they've shown interest in kind of like what you have with the Rams you know you have a young head coach and a veteran defensive coordinator in Wade Phillips a lot of people are kind of looking at Zach Taylor in Cincinnati and thinking he's taking the uh, same approach Uh, Todd Grantham was a guy that they uh, targeted and you know he spent a couple of days this week up in Cincinnati and you know it's it was kind of a win-win situation for Grantham I mean he he has experience in the NFL. He's been a defensive coordinator in the NFL, position coach. So it would have been a chance for him to go back to that league if he wanted to. But the Gators, they sensed this coming at him. Uh, in January, Scott Strickland and Dan Mullen got together and they worked with Grantham and gave him an extension that took his pay up to where he is now among the top five highest paid defensive coordinators in college football. Mm. So while this was playing out, they were back in Gainesville. You know, you never know what's in a, a guy's mind if he if that's just an opportunity that he can't pass up at this stage of his career. He's 52 years old, could be his best shot to get back in the NFL if that's something that he desires. But Strickland and Mullen, I think, felt pretty good, and, and they got word you know, late Wednesday, early Thursday, that Grants was staying. And uh, obviously a big win for Florida in the sense that they get to keep some continuity. And with that relationship, you know, Grantham and, and Mullen, they've only worked together two years, the one year in Mississippi State and then this past year at Florida. But both guys have talked openly about their mutual respect for each other. I mean, Dan Mullen's an offensive guy. He runs that side of the ball with the uh, Hevesy and Billy Gonzalez. Todd Grantham runs the defense. and uh, you know, Mullen trust him and, and it paid off in the first season. I mean, if you look at the defensive statistical categories, I mean, the Gators improved noticeably in, in every major category. Uh, you look at turnovers. They, they created 26 after only about 14 the year before. They increased forced fumbles, fumble recoveries. They went from 69th nationally in, in scoring defense to 20th this past season, cutting down about 7.3 points a game. Uh, so it was a, a big year for Florida. A big reason why they, they turned it around like they did was because of the defensive improvement matched with that offensive improvement. And Todd Grantham gets a lot of credit for that. You, know, you can just tell like, he also earned respect of his players instantly. Those guys, you know, so many of those guys, Adam, want to play at the next level. And when you have an NFL veteran coach who's got 30 years, you know, he's got 
is almost split in half between college and, and NFL. They were lobbying for him on social media the past couple of days as the reports surfaced in the media. They're like, hey, don't leave us. You know, we, we want you back. And that just kind of shows you from a player's standpoint how much he meant. Obviously, what I just talked about from an administrative standpoint, Scott Strickland recognized that this guy was probably going to get some offers. He gets with Dan Mullen. They make it happen. And in the, in the end, I think that probably played a large role in, in why Todd Grantham is coming back to Florida. Uh, I don't know what the Bengals offer was or how serious that was, but he knew he had a good situation at Florida. Uh, him and Mullen have developed a tight connection. And again, it's, it's just another, I guess you could say another win for Mullen and the Gators uh, in year one plus now uh, to be able to hold on to Todd Grantham. The other side of this that people don't often think about, and you know, as fans, you look at, oh, how high profile is the job? What's the opportunity look like? People tend to not think about the family side of this. And you know, as much as we try and reduce football coaches and players to pawns on a chessboard, these are real people with lives and families. And I remember, actually, interestingly enough, I was with Todd Grantham and his wife and Don Brown, the Michigan defensive coordinator, and his wife at a Peach Bowl event up here in Atlanta. And mm-hmm. the, hearing the two of them talk back and forth, uh, Don Brown actually won this part of the battle. He lost the game, but he talked about the fact that they had had 25 separate moves over the course <laughs> of his coaching career, and they had owned 18 houses. So you wow. think about that side of it, and for Grantham, who's moved around a lot recently, he's got a situation now where he's, he's got a, a good job, he's, he's paid well, and also, important to note, He's got a son who's a multi-sport athlete at Buholtz. So, you know, those things also factor in as well. Without question, Adam, and you're right, that's something that we all tend to forget sometimes because these coaches, they do move around a lot more than normal, uh, or at least more than they used to. And certainly, uh, my gosh, I can't even imagine trying to buy and sell 18, 18 houses. houses. And he might not be done. I mean, they're <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but Grantham, you know, he, he was only out in Starkville. You got to remember, he was at Georgia to start this decade, four years, and Louisville for three years. And then he was only in at Starkville with Mullen for a matter of months when you think about the season. Mm-hmm. And then not long after that, he, he joins him here at Florida. So, yeah, I can't imagine the, him or his wife and family wanting to pick up again. Again, you know, you don't get a lot of chances to probably coach in NFL, even – no matter how long you've been around, there's uh, only 32 teams, only 32 defensive coordinator positions. So, again, I totally understand why you, you listen to what they have to say and explore the option. But I, I think uh, some of those things that you mentioned before, you know, he's well paid. He's got a son in the end of his high school time and probably starting to, you know, looking at colleges and already had to move around some growing up. So all those things certainly factor in. And I'm guessing – his wife had something to say with it too. You know, mm-hmm. you, you don't make those moves uh, before you talk to your wife. I know I, I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Earlier in the show, we heard from Kevin O'Sullivan. You know, it's spring. If baseball is starting up, we talked to Tim Walton last week. Softball got going last weekend. As is usual for them, they go down to Tampa. They beat a lot of good teams. They come out undefeated with some great wins for the RPI under their belt. But the difference is, as opposed to coming home into the old KDC Shore Presley Stadium, they came home into the newly renovated one after $11 million was put into a large-scale facelift that's made it look, uh, from what I've seen on TV, 
pretty much unrecognizable to what it was before. So I'm curious for both of you. You were there on the opening night. What are your impressions of this stadium and, and what it's going to do for the experience for players and fans alike? Well, Adam, you know, I was out there on Tuesday against Japan and the fans didn't have a lot to cheer about because Japan, one of the best teams in the world, took care of Ford on the field, which was not that surprising uh, considering the level of play. But that wasn't the uh, the main attraction tonight. Uh, the new revamped KDC Show Presley Stadium was. And I spent most of the night really just walking around trying to uh, catch the game from different angles and seeing what exactly it was. And as someone who had been out to the, the former stadium many times, I mean, this one to me, it felt like a whole different ballpark, even though the field is the same and the location is the same. That's really about the only sense of being in the same place I got because it's just so much more fan friendly. I mean, you hear about it in today's ballparks, these 360 degree uh, concourses. It makes such a difference. You can go out and right field and, and watch the game kind of on a bank and get a really good look. You can go to center field and stand right up on the fence and put your food and drink on a kind of shelf they have on back of the wall. You can go to, to left field and stand on the walkway and look through a chain link fence and see the left fielder about 20 feet in front of you and see the game that way. And then of course, you know, you've, we've all heard about the cover away from the sun, the chair back seating, which was just an update to get the stadium more modernized and fan friendly. I just think it's a, it's one of the best softball stadiums I've ever been in. It's actually, I think the best softball stadium I've ever been in at this point. Uh, Tim Walton made an interesting statement. I thought during the ribbon cutting, he said, look, our goal here wasn't to, to build a stadium that led the nation in attendance. It was to build one that led the nation in, in experience, you know, and meaning the ballpark experience, making people want to come out and remember why they were there and why they enjoyed it, why they go back and, I think they passed that test. What struck me most, Adam, just walking in there, uh, hundreds of times you've walked in that ballpark, right, Adam? Hundreds, yes, right? many, many hundreds. Yes, many hundreds. Well, I mean, before you walk in that, that gate and you're staring at the, a brick wall, right? Mm -hmm. And now it's just amazing because it's the, the difference is so unbelievable. I mean, you walk in, as soon as you pass through the gate, you're looking at the gate. Mm -hmm. And you're looking at the act. There's people standing up there, and the and the the they're, they set up some nice tables up there right behind home plate, where I guess a uh, uh, premium seating or what have you. People can sit there and and eat or whatever. But uh, uh, it's just that, like Scott said, the the 360 degree look that is um, becoming more universal, obviously more fan appealing and what have you. But you walk right in, you're at the game. And that extends down the sidelines. There's much more uh, seating down the way. You see the, the grass berms, um, the buildings, uh, the edifices just in, in their own. You look out to the left and um, in Tim Walton's office before was a, out there was a closet. Mm -hmm. I've been in there and, talk, and talked to him before and, and he actually shared it with his other assistant coaches, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. One office for all. Yeah, that's, that's right. Well, one closet for all. Yes, one closet um, for all. Yeah. Yeah, and now he's got this this thing in the corner. It's two stories. It oh, and he's got beautiful like you can see a uh, like a, a meeting room in there, and his office in there, and these glass doors that open up. He's got a balcony that overlooks on his kingdom. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I've always been. I was having this conversation with somebody the other day. Yeah, this guy is just a, a recruiting bulldog, and has been since the time he got here. The fact that he can get the best players from California every year to come across the country, and he did it before getting them to that that stadium. Well, imagine now they're going to come in here and I didn't get a chance to see the locker rooms and all stuff because a lot of that stuff's not finished yet. 
some of the there a lot of the operations are still going on um, over there by the Southwest Rec Center. They're still working out of there uh, for, for a couple more weeks, the way I understand it. But um, now he's going to have these people come in, just walking through this palatial new uh, complex. And I imagine it's it's uh, of course it's only going to help recruiting, but uh, uh, doing it for for the Japan and all that stuff that, that that was cool. Ribbon cutting was cool, but once the SEC season starts and uh, invariably, and uh, of course when Florida hosts the NCAA tournament, that is going to be uh, quite the venue for something like that. And uh, congratulations, obviously, to Tim for for having that and the players for being able to enjoy that, and obviously for the Florida administration for getting that done. Uh, flipping that thing around. I mean, it just seems like a couple of weeks ago that Jordan Matthews was striking that home run and, uh, you know, we're getting on a plane to Oklahoma City. We got back and there was bulldozers in the outfield. So um, they didn't waste any time. And certainly it was, uh, I want to say it was worth the wait over the, the, la- the last few years. Uh, I don't think there's anybody complaining about it. Let's move on to our PAT this week, which is going to be uh, uh, inspired by a really cool experience I had a couple of weeks ago. When my cousin, whose name is Matthew Broussard, he's very funny if you haven't seen him before. He's a stand-up comic. He performed on The Tonight Show, and I got to go there with him, do the whole backstage deal, meet Jimmy Fallon. It was one of those once-in-a-lifetime type opportunities that uh, when I talked to you guys about it, you had said, oh, and and you both had stories that were similar in terms of really cool behind-the-scenes experiences. One of them related to a late-night talk show, one of them not. So uh, let, let's start with the one that is related to a late night talk show. And Chris, I know you have a, a, a Jay Leno anecdote you could share with us. Yeah, I think it was 1997. I was out visiting my brother and sister-in-law in California, and they got tickets to a Jay Leno show. And you know, normally people have to go out there and wait in the line to try to get into the show. But we had like some kind of advanced tickets or something. So I thought it was cool how, you know, when, when the show comes on, when you're watching it on TV, uh, everyone's all hyped and going crazy and everything. And uh, I get people who have been to these things obviously knew this. So, and I, I guess maybe I knew it, but I, I didn't know how, how the audience embraced it like they did. But they have a co- comedian come out who's pretty damn funny. Mm-hmm. And he gets everyone going, 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 and, and the crowd's finally going. And that's right then is when they, boom, they hit the uh, they hit the band. Out comes Jay Leno when the crowd's all at its prime and whatever. And that, that night, um, it happened to be a uh, Omar Epps. Mm. Okay, and a a up and coming actress who had just made a uh, a movie uh, called Phantom Mentis, and uh, it was Natalie Portman. Oh wow! And uh, I, I yeah, and I didn't know a whole lot about her at the time, but obviously she was a uh, her star was a little bit on a positive trajectory after that. Um, those were the two people that that I got to see, and it was kind of cool. Um, uh, and I, I imagine your experience up there in New and again that was that was in Beverly Hills. That was L.A. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I, and the and the uh, I imagine your experience in New York was very very similar, especially you know being able to uh, to meet a guy like Jimmy Fallon. Yeah, Jimmy Fallon was a really really nice guy behind the scenes, which is always nice when that that matches up for you. But you're right, Chris. It's a very for those that haven't been to a talk show and and had that whole experience. It is a very manufactured experience. They tell you when to clap. They tell you to go crazy. Uh, and it, it's Absolutely. very it's very carefully plotted out. And if it seems spontaneous. That's sort of the idea behind it, but not really how it how it operates. Now, on the other side, Scott, you have more of a, a behind the scenes type story. So you've got that part of my story, but not the talk show. So this is sort of bringing the, the two together and bringing it back to sports for us. Isn't that right? I do have a little bit of a talk show. You do? I didn't realize that. It's not as in-depth as either one of your all's or. It was funny to me just because of the circumstances why I was there. 
when I was covering the Delaware A's, you know, I would always go to New York a couple times a year when they played the Yankees. And one year, uh, I went over to see the Letterman Show in Ed Sullivan Theater. And like you just mentioned, it was very uh, fabricated in some ways I didn't expect. Uh, there was some kind of, I can't remember exactly what the news story was in New York, something with the city at the time that was just dismal, kind of a train wreck. And Letterman opened up comparing hey, at least New Yorkers have something else to make fun of. The Devil Rays are in town this week. And Ooh. I just, I remember that and just laughing instantly because that's the only reason I was in town and to cover them up there. But but probably my coolest behind-the-scenes story is, again, in New York, is, again, baseball back in the days when I covered baseball. But, you know, 2005, it was a big story in Tampa when I worked at the Tribune when Wade Boggs, a guy who grew up in Tampa, played at Plant High, obviously finished his career with the double rays, he was going into the hall of fame. And so I flew up to New York with him and his wife to spend the whole day with them. This was the event when they were being introduced as the next hall of famers, him and Ryan Sandberg were in the class. I think this was in technically in December of 2004 when we went up and the ceremony in Cooperstown, which I went to also, that was a few months later in the summer of 05. But this was something that we had to arrange uh, with baseball hall of fame uh, to get this kind of access, uh, they gave it to us. And, you know, just hanging around with Boggs and his wife all day, but also Ryan Sandberg and his family. I'll be honest with you, I wasn't a huge Wade Boggs fan, but I loved Ryan Sandberg <laughs> growing up. So that was actually, I didn't write about Sandberg as much as Boggs, but it was a great day just to kind of be around two guys who were going into the Hall of Fame, two guys that were infielders, uh, not known for their power, Although Sandberg had some big power years with the Cubs, uh, but just great all-around players, and, and you get to see them and you know talk to them as people a little bit more. And Chris, I'm sure, has experiences in sports like this where it's fun to kind of see these people in a different light. Like we were talking about earlier about Todd Grantham and the family equation and coaching. People kind of forget about that when you're when you're talking about all these moves that these guys make. Uh, you know, same for baseball or any pro athlete. I mean. These guys move around a lot, but that was one of those things when I, you know, when people ask me my coolest experience in sports, I mean, that would probably be in my top two or three just because both of those guys were superstars of what they did and uh, just hanging around in New York City with them from stop to stop and uh, getting to uh, chat with them a little bit behind the scenes. It was fun. Yeah, that is very cool. And uh, that's one of the advantages to working in sports is you do get experiences like that from time to time. And you have some cool stories to tell on podcasts. So that's obviously the number one priority. Uh, hopefully, we'll have some cool stories to tell on this podcast next week because Scott is going to be covering the opening weekend of Gator Baseball. That is going to be at McKeithen Stadium. I encourage everybody to go to the MAC to check that out. And Chris, of course, will be with basketball as they go to Alabama looking for a really important win to maybe turn that corner and get back inside the bubble as opposed to on the outside looking in. Of course, we'll be talking about that with them next week. And in the meantime, follow them at Gators Scott and Gators Chris. Their content will be up on FloridaGators.com. Guys, thank you so much. Thanks, Adam. See you, Adam. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Head over to FloridaGators.com to get the full slate of this weekend's action, including baseball opening up at home against Long Beach State. Then come back next week as we'll break it all down. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you at the Mac.